We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're winding down. We've studied 1 and 2 Peter for a long time, but winding down toward the end. Last week we talked about chapter 3 a little bit. We'll go back uh, and, and review what we're dealing with. Chapter 2 in 2 Peter is about false teachers who are teaching all sorts of different things and God said, I will take care of that. Chapter 3, we find out one of the problems. People said Jesus is not coming back. He's promised He's coming back. He said He was coming back, but everything is just the same as it was since creation. He's not coming back. And therefore, Peter makes the argument things are not as they've always been since creation. You forgot about the flood. Things greatly change. Just because God is patient doesn't mean that He's going to come back. And in verse 8, He reminds them of something that the psalmist in Psalm 90 verse 4 had already said. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. What He's trying to teach, and we talked a little bit about it, is God is not restrained by time. You see, the problem with the people's thinking is they were thinking... Um, in the way we think. The more time that passes on a promise that I made to you, what happens? If I tell Lyndon I'm going to do something, and in six months I've not done it, and in a year I've not done it, two years I've not done it, more than likely what's happened? I forgot. Uh, you see, with man, the more time that passes, the far less likely you are to go through with your word. A lot of things can happen. We may die, we may get sick, we may forget, we may just a ton of different things can happen, but Peter's argument is it's not that way with God. God is not bound by time. God and time, he doesn't think with time. He doesn't operate with time. You see, there's a lot of things about God that we can't fathom because we're not God. We can't think like God. Everything that we do is bound up in time. Everything that we do. God doesn't operate that way. And again, that's hard to understand. That was hard for these people to understand. But when we think about God and we think about time, I heard a, a lesson one time. I believe Tom Holland did it. I can't remember. But it, was, it happened two days ago. I remember that. And what he was talking about in that lesson, and he applied it to 2 Peter 3.8, and I know what he was trying to do. He said, in God's mind, Jesus was crucified two days ago. Why would he say that? Well, the day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. The more time passes on things, the more we are apt to forget it, right? But see, you can apply this verse, the more time has passed. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was crucified. But with God, it was just like it was two days ago. It was like it just happened. So you see, God and man, we are totally different. We don't think alike, we don't act alike, we don't operate alike. None of that are the same. And Peter wanted his readers uh, to understand this. He says, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance. He said, the Lord's not slack. He, he says, you know, when it comes to delaying uh, what you're going to do, he, he's not like man. Sometimes we delay things because, again, maybe we forgot. 
Sometimes we delay doing things simply because we're procrastinators. Anybody in this room a procrastinator? You just put things off and you put it off and you put it off and some people are like that, right? Sometimes we delay in doing things just because we're lazy. You ever do that? You just don't want to do it. So therefore, you just don't do it. But the Lord's not slack like man is. Sometimes we delay in doing things because we're busy. You ever like that in your life? You, you want to get something done, but it seems like you've got so much going on that you just can't seem to get it done? Let's well, see, the Lord's not slack like man. The Lord's not too busy to get this thing done. In fact, you see, the people had accused God of all of these things. He's not coming back. He lied. He, whatever you may want to say that they accuse God of, but they're thinking about it like a man, and they're not thinking about it from God's perspective. From God's perspective, His delay was because benevolence. You ever considered that? God's delay was simply because of His love. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 God says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. It's fed up. He says, I, I, I'm going to destroy him. But I'm going to give him how long? Genesis 6, verse 3. 120 years, right? God is fed up. He's had enough. He's going to wipe the face of the earth. Why didn't he do it right then? You ever considered that? You think? Could he have done it right then? Could he have the moment he had had enough and he says, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created. Could he have done it right then? Why didn't he? Same reason. Love. Benevolence. God, he, he desires. He desires that, that people not perish. He, he doesn't want anybody to perish. Ezekiel 33 verse 11, the Bible says, the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. You know, you and I, when Osama bin Laden was hunted down and he was executed, everybody was happy, right? We were all happy. We're excited. Man, this guy that's attacked America, he's gone now. But God wasn't excited. God wasn't excited. You say, well, God, surely he wasn't for him. That's not what I'm saying. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. In fact, that verse goes on to say God wants everybody to repent. God wants everybody to be saved. Even though in Genesis chapter 6, and I keep going back to that because Peter has always gone back to that. Man, these people, the Bible says, the thoughts and the intents of their hearts were only evil continually. That's all they thought about. That's all they did. That's all they wanted to do. But yet God still gave them 120 years. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. God is long-suffering. I want you to think about that. I looked up the word long-suffering. Of course, it means to, to suffer long. It means mild and slow in avenging. Think about that. Mild and slow in avenging. If somebody does something to us, you know, especially as a child, what did you want to do? You want to get them back, right? When did you want to get them back? Somebody be honest. When did you want to get them back? Right away, just as soon as you could get a hold of them. You want to, but God is mild and slow at avenging. Have we done something to God? Do, do we deserve to be gotten back? 
The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He's going to repay. He's going to get his vengeance. But he's mild at it. And he's slow at it. In fact, it means slow to anger, slow to punish. And I want us to think about that just for a second. During the flood, God was slow to anger, slow to punish. During the time of Sodom and Gomorrah after that, was God long-suffering? Abraham goes to God, God, would you spare the city for how many first? You may remember? Fifty? Yep. God, would you spare it for 45? Yep. God, just don't be angry with me. What about 40? Yep. What about 30? Yeah. What about 10, God? Please, would you spare it for 10? That's long-suffering, isn't it? God has been long-suffering with Abraham. Abraham was scared to death to ask God that very thing. But God still allowed it. God was still patient and long-suffering and kind with it. I'll spare it for 10 people. But he couldn't find 10 people. What about Israel? What about Israel? Was God long-suffering with the nation of Israel? Yeah. You know, from the time, and I mentioned it this morning, from the time of the divided kingdom, Israel had been exceedingly wicked. Exceedingly wicked. Jeroboam, it's repeated over and over and over again. All these kings, they followed in the sins of Jeroboam that made Israel to sin. He changed the place of worship. He changed the object of worship. He changed the time of worship. He did everything contrary to God, but God still allowed them to live and to be a nation for about 200 years. Is that long-suffering? I mean, man, these people had completely turned their backs upon God, and they couldn't even get one good king, but yet God's long-suffering. But eventually he'd had enough. Eventually he had enough, and the Assyrians come in and carried them off. Well, Judah... God was more long-suffering because there had been some good. And they had turned to God from time to time, but still it comes to the point that God has had enough. Romans chapter 11, it talks about that. The whole chapter talks about that, and it, and it compares God's religious people to this tree, and He says the Jews were the natural branches, right? They're the natural branches, and He says, man, they were a part of this tree, and I wanted them to be a part of this tree but what happens after so long? After so much rebellion? He says, after so much, I've got to cut the branch off. And he says, you Gentiles, you're not part of the natural tree, but I can graft you in. Anybody ever seen somebody, and I can't do it, they can graft a, something to another tree? I had a tree in my front yard, and I cut it down, but it was two fruit trees that somebody had grafted together. And it grew two types of fruits, one on each side. God says, you Gentiles, you don't belong in the natural tree. I can graph you in. I can put you in this. But he says, listen, I'm only going to be patient so long. If I cut off the natural branch, I, I can cut off the, the one that I graph in too. And that's why Romans 11 verse 22 says, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Goodness on those that... That, that follow in His path and do the things, but severity on those that, that choose to do on the contrary. But you see, God is long-suffering with us. But here's the point we've got to learn. God's long-suffering, but finally that runs out. His patience is far better than every person in this room combined and, and tripled by a thousand. But someday that patience runs out. Someday. And you and I don't want to test that, do we? 
We don't want to test that. We don't want to be uh, any part of that. He says, the Lord's not slack concerning His promises. Some man counts lightning. But is long-suffering, I want you to notice this, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Calvinism teaches predestination, right? What's predestination mean? Certain people were predestined to be saved. Certain people predestined to be lost, right? What does that verse do to that? He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. If predestination was true, doesn't that verse destroy that? Yeah. yeah he's, he's not... He, he, anybody, whosoever will, Revelation 22, verse 17, doesn't matter who you are, Titus 2, 11, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Not just a certain select few. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And you and I need to learn that. Sometimes we kind of, we look at certain people and we think, yeah, they wouldn't make a good Christian. They're not ever going to change. God's not willing that any should perish. We profile people, don't we? You say, no, I don't, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Every person in this assembly, you profiled somebody at one point in your life. We can't do that. God's not willing that any should perish. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants everybody to be saved. And we're supposed to be like God. And that's hard. It will never achieve that height. But that's something we can strive for. We should not be willing that any should perish ourselves, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Day of the Lord. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus was asked some questions in Matthew 24. When shall these things be? What's the sign of thy coming? And when's the end of the world? He was asked three questions. First question, he answered all the way down through verse 35. When these things going to be? Destruction of Jerusalem. He answers it. What's the sign of your coming? Verse 36, the day and the hour knoweth no man, my Father only. Peter says the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. You've heard this multiple times if you've been in the church. We never know when the thief's coming. We never expect it, right? Somebody may have broken my house right now. I sure hope not. But if they did, I, I wouldn't expect them. I, I don't think about it. You see, we've got to live this life with that in the, in the forefront. I started to say in the back of our mind. Don't put it in the back of your mind. Put it in the forefront of your mind. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Again, Matthew 24, Jesus says it'll be just like in the days of Noah. Everything always goes back to Noah with all of these writers. He said they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came and what happened? Took them all away. They weren't expecting it. It came like a thief in the night. One day, all of a sudden, it starts coming a flood. And the people weren't ready. One day, one day, there's going to be fire and brimstone falling from the sky just out of the blue. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Apostle Paul said. Can you imagine that? How many of us, we wake up every day and we think, today might be the day. I don't do that. Should I do that? Yeah. Every day we wake up, we should have on our minds, today might be the day. And I'm not saying... We should drive ourselves batty and, 
You know, we could just walk around trembling in fear. That's not what, and we're going to find out, we're hastening that day. We're looking forward to that day as Christians. But he says, that day's coming. That day's coming. That I'm going to destroy this earth. He says, I'm going to do it with a noise. I looked up, and that word noise, it's a word in which the sound suggests the sense. I want you to think about that again. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. Is there going to actually just be a noise that causes all this to happen? No. Have you ever heard a fire? Probably everybody in here has heard a fire, hadn't you? What does a fire sound like? There's a lot of crackling and popping, and, and a fire roars, doesn't it? You ever been around a big fire? I mean, man, it's just roaring, and you can hear it. And God says, at the end of time, it's going to be a great noise. Can you imagine a fire that will melt the earth? Can you imagine a fire that will melt the sky? can't imagine that, can you? We've never seen anything like that. Is it going to happen? Yep. He said it's going to happen. And these people, they denied all of these things that the Lord said is going to happen. But Peter's reminding them, these things will happen. He says these things, it's going to destroy the elements, the base, uh, the base makeup of the earth, the things that the earth is made of, all of these atoms, and uh, all of that's going to be destroyed. He says the elements, the Bible says, the works, the works, they're going to be destroyed. Everything that God made is going to be destroyed. Everything that man made is going to be destroyed. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? We've seen all of these natural disasters. We've seen a lot of these things. And, but I want you to picture something that these things are going to be dissolved. These things are going to be gone. You ever had a, a big stack of wood and you, you carry all this heavy wood and you throw it into the fire and, and what happens when it's burned? It's gone, right? Now, can you imagine skyscrapers in New York City? They're just like that stick of wood. They're gone. That's hard to fathom. But that's what Peter's saying. He says the works of man and God are going to be gone. They're going to disappear. He says they're going to be burned up. The word burned up in the Greek means to be consumed wholly. Gone. Gone. That's a scary thing. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Therefore, go back to verse 10. These things are going to be burned up. And it is an absolute certainty. It's not maybe these things are going to be burned up. You know, maybe if, if God's having a bad... An absolute certainty that the, verse 10 is going to happen. No questions asked. Verse 10 is going to happen. Therefore, he says, what about your life? If verse 10, without a doubt, is going to happen, what about your life? Is that a fair question? Is that a, is that a question we should take heed to? It is. And it's a scary question. He says, all things are going to be dissolved. Every material thing gone, only the spiritual survives. You ever thought about that? 
at the end of time, every material thing is gone. And only the spiritual is left. Which one do we put most of our efforts into? Nobody has to answer, but you be honest with yourself. i gotta, I got to be honest with me. Which one do I put more emphasis on? Which one do I put more effort into? Material, spiritual. Because at the end of time, there's only one going to stand. That's, that's something to think about. So many times, you know, I run through this life. I'll speak about me. I run through this life and my mind is focused 100 miles an hour on what I need to do, where I need to be, how much I need to accomplish, how much money I may need to do this, 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 or whatever. And I'm solely focused sometimes on the material. And the spiritual takes a back seat sometimes. And I don't think I'm the only one that that happens to from time to time. You see, and Peter's trying to remind us all those things, it doesn't matter. You can build an empire. You can be the most powerful. That Elon Musk that owns... He's the richest man in the world, but at the end of time, he's going to have nothing. All that's going to be left is his soul. And God's going to say, which one did you put more emphasis on? Which one was most important to you? Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person? Manner of persons in the Greek actually means from what country do you belong? From what country? Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is not here, but it's where? Heaven, right? So what Peter is reminding us, whom do you belong to? Where does your allegiance lie? What country are you from? Are you a heavenly citizen? Or if you're simply an earthly citizen, there's no me, no more earth. Nothing more for you there. So you're in trouble. He says, what kind of person ought you to be? The word actually means ought to be found. Someday when God comes back and that trumpet sounds and all these things happen, I'm going to be found in one way or the other. Right? It's that simple. These are sobering things. They really are. God is going to find me. How do you want to be found? How I live my life determines that outcome, doesn't it? How God is going to find me. How He's going to see me on that day. Man, Peterson, that has got to be of utmost importance. He says, in all holy conduct. Holy conduct, it simply means your manner of life. How have you carried yourself with other people? How have you acted uh, around the public? What have you done for the Lord? How has your conduct been when it comes to holiness and righteousness? And the last part says, you're going to be found with your conduct, and you're going to be found on how you've treated Godliness. And again, that word godliness goes back to the idea. It simply means reverence or respect. How have I acted towards my God? How have I reverenced Him? How have I respected Him? If I reverence, if I show reverence to someone or respect to someone, how do I act in our society? I act different than I do you know, maybe toward other people, right? If I truly want to show you respect, I, I will look like I want to show respect in, in, in what I wear and how I act and what I say and, and everything in my life, I will act differently than maybe I would around everyone else. If I truly want to show you respect and reverence, God is reminding us of the same thing. 
How am I going to be found showing reverence and respect to him on that day? That's a serious, serious thought. And it's something we need to consider every day of our life. He says, as Christians, verse 12, we're looking for and we're hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. I want you to notice this. The last three verses in a row, he said the same thing, hasn't he? He said the exact same thing. Verse 10, the heavens are going to pass away, the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat, the earth's going to be burned up. Verse 11, all these things are going to be dissolved. Verse 12, the heavens are going to be dissolved, they're going to be on fire, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Why is he saying it over and over and over again? He's trying to get our attention, isn't he? This thing is going to really happen. And sometimes our minds just, they can't wrap around that. We come to church and we sit in Bible class and we hear sermons and we think, yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, I know all of that. But do we really, do we really focus on that? Do we really get, this is real and it's going to happen. Just because we've never seen it doesn't mean it's not real. Genesis chapter 6, those people had never seen rain. They'd never seen rain in their life. And therefore, it didn't seem real. I have never seen fire come down from the sky. That doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It will. Peter wants to remind us, as Christians, we're to look for. Look for means to watch or to expect. As Christians, I I need to be expecting that one day this is going to happen. And like I said earlier, when we wake up in the morning, it may be today. We need to look for that. We need to expect it. And therefore, our, our life, our, our conduct changes because we're looking for it, we're expecting it. He says we should hasten it. Hasten it. We should want it to come quicker. How many of you woke up today and you prayed, Lord, I sure wish you'd come back today and burn this whole place up. Anybody do that? Maybe I'm being a little silly. But isn't that what the Bible says? We're hasten. John, at the end of the book of Revelation, what did he say? Come, Lord Jesus. He's praying. Come, I want you to come right now. Can we truly in our lives pray, Lord, I want you to come right now? Most of the time, no. Most of the time we think, Lord, I want you to come way on down the line somewhere. But we should be living in our, our lives so that we should be able to say every day, Lord, I want you to come today. I'm ready to go home. And again, that's a sobering thought. Whether or not we are able uh, to say that. We're going to do one more verse and we're going to quit. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens and new earth. That's been prophesied, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 66, uh, verse 22. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, And behold, I saw the new heavens and a new earth come down. It's a bride, it's a dawn, all of these things. This new heaven and new earth. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. What's the place he prepared? a new heaven and it's a new earth and in this place he says righteousness dwells the only thing in this place is going to be good is going to be godly is going to be right all right i wrote down some things new heaven and new earth 
Anybody, you got a whole lot of details of what that's going to be like? We can wonder, can't we? We can question. We know a few things. It comes after the destruction of the old one. Only the new heavens and new earth comes after the destruction of the old one. We know that, that at the time that the fire and brimstone comes down, that's when Jesus is finished, according to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 23. He's the first fruits of those that are going to rise after him, and all that's going to happen at this time. At this time, he's going to deliver the kingdom to the Father, and according to Hebrews chapter 2, he's going to dwell amongst us as brethren in this new heaven and this new earth. There's no premillennialism at all in this verse. It's not going to be some new heaven and earth where Jesus is going to sit on a throne and, and reign. That's not in this verse. You know, heaven and earth, I want you to think about this. Heaven and earth as we know it, and when we speak of heaven in this verse, we're talking about the sky, the things we see around us and above us. That's simply where we dwell, right? Anyone want to know where we dwell? We, we dwell on earth, right? We dwell in here in Cookville on the planet Earth. This is simply talked about to describe where we are going to dwell. Where we're going to dwell at this time. So in essence, what he's talking about is heaven. Now, where is this going to be? You ever thought about that? Where is it going to be? What's the characteristics of it? You say, oh, I know there's going to be a street of gold. I don't think there's going to be a street of gold. I think... John is describing in language that we would understand it. It's going to be an excellent, awesome place. But we don't know a lot of details, do we? We know it's going to be something better than anything we've ever seen or thought about or talked about or imagined in our lives. We know that Paul says it's far better to be with the Lord. We understand all of those things. We understand that Jesus is going to be there. We understand we will see God face to face. We don't have a lot of details. We walk by faith and not by sight when it comes to heaven. Now, having said all of that, there's a lot of people that believe that this earth at this time and what it's talking about is going to be rejuvenated. That fire is going to purify it. And God is redoing it all for us. And I even know some well, well-respected Christian preachers that believe that. And I would like to know where they get those ideas. Uh, I don't think that's what Peter's dealing with here. He says the heavens and the earth that we know are going to be dissolved. If something is dissolved, if something is burned up, if something is melted with fervent heat, what happens? It's gone. Never to come back again. When you burn a stick of wood, you're not getting it back, are you? It's gone. Remember that. I appreciate your attention.